and gentlemen, welcome to Exhibition History, the place to be for the greatest stories the world has ever known. Join us for each sword episode where we cover the greatest adventures and voyages of the past. Exhibition History, Episode 6, Persian Dawn. In this episode, Persian Dawn, we'll be taking a different approach to what we hear at the podcast, that is to say, you and I, are used to. Rather than look at one individual group or story, we will be covering a whopping three stories, yes, three, and at a different level than what we normally do, with the episode being broken down into three distinguishable parts, each one a legend that, when all sewn together, provides the framework for the origin story behind one of antiquity's mightiest superpowers. Those separate events, each will occur during the rise of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, an entity which, at its height, was the largest empire the world had yet to see. If any of this sounds familiar to you from the lens of the podcast, you may recognize the Achaemenid Persians as our old friends, well, foes really, from our first ever episode, The Tale of the Ten Thousand. If you're new to the podcast, I highly recommend checking it out. But I've rambled on long enough. Without further ado, I present Persian Dawn, Part 1, The Prophecy. In 559 BC, the lands of the ancient Near East, what we in the West recognize and refer today as the Middle East, were the center of the world. To the four large and powerful empires that ruled over the area, the Near East was the world. On the southwestern border of the known world, stretched along the mighty Nile River, stood the 26th dynasty of Egypt, a fertile breadbasket with a history so old that it was ancient even to those who lived 2,500 years ago. North of them, encompassing what is today Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and southern Iraq, was the Neo-Babylonian Empire, a historical juggernaut, itself a reincarnation of the old Babylonian Empire that had existed a millennia before. To their northwest, located in the western half of Anatolia, modern Turkey, was the Lydian Empire, whose wealth was so boundless that they invented the first gold and silver coin, replacing the barter system with the world's first ever currency in order to facilitate prosperous economic development. And finally, stretching from central Anatolia and into Iran, were the Medes, the strongest and largest of them all, who had among them many different client states and vassals, subservient kingdoms who owed the Medes tribute in men and wealth in return for their continued existence. The four great empires had fought many skirmishes and battles over the ages, but each had proved too strong for the other to entirely subdue. Set in their ways, the old world was long overdue for a violent upheaval and it was from a median vassal that such a disturbance would arise to challenge the status quo. Somewhere between the years of 590 to 580 BC, a child was born in what is today southern Iran, a place then known as Anshan, the home of the Persian people. Born unto the king of Anshan, Cambyses I, and his wife, the daughter of the Median king Astyages, the child was named Cyrus II in honor of his grandfather. Only an infant, he had yet to earn his famous title, Cyrus the Great. Having been born into such an esteemed family, however, from the beginning it was all too apparent that he was destined for greatness. According to legend, such a destiny troubled King Astyages, who had a series of prophetic dreams that, once translated by his advisors, foretold of his grandson seizing the throne and proclaiming himself king after a successful rebellion. Holding the only throne in Anshan, King Astyages took Cyrus's birth as a direct threat to his reign. Desiring to ensure the prophecy could never be fulfilled, the king seized his infant grandson from his daughter and passed him off to his finest general, a proud warrior by the name of Harpagus, who, not wishing to kill a child himself, passed him on to a lonely herdsman to do the deed instead. Unbeknownst to Harpagus, the herdsman and his wife were grieving from a recently failed birth. Their son had just been born stillborn. 
Racked by sorrow, the herdsman pitied young Cyrus and, possessing enough morality to not wantonly murder an infant, took Cyrus home to his wife to raise as their own. When Harpagus returned days later to confirm the deed had been done, the shepherd couple passed off Cyrus as their biological son, claiming to have left the infant in the nearby mountains to die of exposure. Satisfied with what he believed was a job well done, Harpagus left the shepherds and returned to the royal court in order to report his success to Astyages. Pleased with his general and confident in his security upon the throne, Astyages applauded his loyal general, and the two lived in ignorant bliss for just over a decade. At the age of 12, Cyrus had already developed quite a reputation among the local boys in the schoolyard and had esteemed himself among the children of the nobility, lording over them and punishing those who challenged his playtime rule. Upset that he and his friends had to take orders from a shepherd's son, one of the scorned dissenters ran to his father to report the abuses he had suffered from the low-born youth. How dare the son of a herder punish a child of one of Media's most noble families? Taken directly to the royal court, perhaps the Median legal system was having a slow day, Cyrus, who at the time had been living under his peasant name, was placed in front of King Asiages for questioning. Upon being asked where he finds the authority to wield such imagined powers, Cyrus was said to reply in such an intelligent and eloquent way that, gazing upon the child and seeing the features of his own blood, King Asiages immediately knew who the boy was. As he gazed into Cyrus's young eyes, the threatening dream returned to Asiages all at once. Perhaps it never left. The king dispatched some of his guards to retrieve the herdsman, who was brought in at sword point and confessed the truth. Harpagus was brought in shortly after, and, seeing the herdsman, immediately knew what had happened, and without skipping a beat, threw himself to the ground in front of the king in prostration, begging for forgiveness and expecting the worse. King Astyages, rather than punishing him there on the spot in a fit of rage, was surprisingly delighted. Instead of ordering an execution, Astyages decided to grow a great feast in order to celebrate the return of his long-lost grandson. The king ordered Harpagus to rise before saying him to summon his own family for the night's festivities. Elated at his good fortune, Harpagus ran home to fetch his wife and only son, hurriedly returning to the palace with the two in tow. This night would not be one to forget. As the rest of the guests arrive over the course of the evening, Astyages, Cyrus, Harpagus, and the rest of the court began to take their seats. Strangely, however, Harpagus's son was nowhere to be found. It was no matter. He had many connections within the court, and was perhaps off somewhere courting a noblewoman's daughter. The feast began in earnest as fine dishes from all across the empire were placed before the many guests, all centered around great racks of lamb. Placed in front of Harpagus, however, was a different, unrecognizable cut of meat. He gorged himself on the flesh before him, and when it was clear that he could eat no more, Astyages approached him and asked if he had enjoyed it. Having consumed it all, Harpagus answered that he had, that the meat was delicious and well-prepared. In response, Astyages offered to show him what he had eaten. Beckoning the servants over, they arrived at the table side with a covered basket and gave it to Harpagus. Removing its cover, the general peered into the basket, and though he did not make a sound, his face turned starkly pale. Gazing up at him was the decapitated head of his son, the empty eyes staring deep into his soul, the skull resting upon pairs of dismembered hands and feet. The general, a seasoned warrior, was no stranger to ghastly sights, but with the basket before him, he struggled to maintain his composure. The feast continued all around him, the partygoers oblivious to the personal tragedy that had just occurred. Astyages asked Harpagus if he was aware of what game he had eaten. Harpagus? still fixated upon the contents of the basket, replied that he did. He knew it well. Closing the basket, he excused himself 
and returned home to bury what remains he could. Now, Harbogus was an honorable man, as virtuous and loyal as they come, and as a testament to his character and previous exemplary conduct, Astyages was more than willing to let bygones be bygones. Believing he had suitably punished the general for his mistake, Astyages did nothing more against Harbogus and, rather than letting him go, decided to hold on to him. After all, Harbogus was his finest general. Such a man would be near impossible to replace. But he was still just a man, one who never forgot, and one who never forgave. Following the cannibal feast, King Astyages met with his advisors in regard to young Cyrus. The boy was alive, and as the prophecy went, that meant he was still destined to steal the throne. The royal advisors, however, now viewed the prophecy a bit differently. The prophecy, they reasoned, had only said two things, that Cyrus would one day be king, and that his rule would be following a rebellion. It never specifically mentioned over what his kingship would reign, or what sort of rebellion would occur. Having been proclaimed play king by the other children, that checked box number one. His conflict against the noble children while at play, the whole reason he had been brought before Astyages to begin with, was seen as the prophesied rebellion, checking box number two. Thus, in the minds of the royal advisors, the prophecy had already been fulfilled. Elated, Astyages sent for Cyrus, and according to the Greek historian Herodotus, our primary source in the matter, said, quote, My son, I have wronged thee greatly, misled by a deceitful dream, but thy good fortune has saved thee. Now, Go cheerfully to the land of the Persians. I shall give thee safe conduct. And so Cyrus was sent home to the house of Cambyses, his rightful family, who, believing he had been long since dead, was overcome with joy upon his arrival, reunifying after more than a decade apart. With the family reunited, all was well in the land of the Persians. For now. You didn't think that was the end of the story, did you? Cyrus still has his whole life ahead of him, and you don't get called the Great for lounging around in peacetime. Peace, as they say, makes for awfully poor reading. Having returned to his family, Cyrus reclaimed his rightful place as Prince of Anshan. Rising to the throne upon his father's death in 559 BC, the young King Cyrus was unhappy. Yes, he was now the King of Anshan rather than a prince, but he wasn't sovereign. Anshan was still a client state of the Medes, and Cyrus, a mere client king. As he consolidated his rule through the first years of his reign, Cyrus began to plan as to how he could break free of the Median chains that bound him. A full-scale rebellion would certainly be necessary, but against the limitless strength of the Medes, it seemed unfeasible. But as he deliberated, an old acquaintance reached out. It had been some years since the fateful feast, and Harpagus had never let go. Continuing to serve Astyages, Harpagus chose to bide his time, waiting for the perfect moment to exact his revenge. Word had reached him of King Cyrus's distaste for the current geopolitical situation, and Harpagus himself was more than aware of the young boy's boundless ambition. He began to write Cyrus, setting up a vigorous correspondence, encouraging him to rebel against his overlord and throw off the Median yoke. Should he rebel, Harpagus promised, he would have the general's full support, a man on the inside. Cyrus, knowing a golden opportunity when he saw one, leapt at the offer. In 553 BC, Cyrus rebelled against the Medes, assembling an army of some 50,000 men and challenging Astyages to do something about it. Such a slight against Median authority would not go unpunished, and Astyages, after assembling an army 150,000 strong, set out to suppress the uprising. The sources vary in regard to the exact details of the conflict, with some saying skirmishes and battles were being fought throughout the war years, and others saying that the Medians didn't even react until 550 BC, 
and still more, suggesting that Cambyses I, Cyrus's dead father, was actually still alive and active in the fighting. It is fairly safe to say, however, that the Persian Revolt lasted from 553 to 550 BC, and it's the ending of the war that we truly care about. The vast meeting hordes had continually borne down upon the Persians throughout the conflict, losing scores of men to Cyrus and his smaller force, who despite their prowess on the battlefield, were forced time and again to give ground and withdraw to ensure their own survival. This was the course of the war until 550 BC, when the army under King Astyages himself was able to catch Cyrus and his woefully outnumbered army, forcing them into a decisive battle. Astyages, eager to seize the victory that lie ahead, placed his ever-faithful general Harpagus in charge of the attack. Astyages had no knowledge of the correspondence between his general and Cyrus, a correspondence that had never ceased, and so had no idea of the plan that was about to unfold against him. As the battle began, so says Herodotus, quote, Those who were not in on the plan fought, while others deserted to the enemy. Unquote. Harpagus, alongside many other discontented Median nobles, defected in the middle of the battle, joining the Persian side in the heat of combat. Bolstered by the fresh numbers, Cyrus and his men crushed their weakened enemy, killing thousands and making just as many prisoners, shattering the Median army before them and sending the survivors fleeing for their lives into the countryside. As his army disintegrated before him, Astyages gathered together all of his advisors, those who had said that the prophecy had already been fulfilled, and put them all to death. Gathering what willing and able fighting men he could, Astyages, king of the Medes, personally led an attack against the Persian lines and was soundly defeated, being captured by the Persians in a last-ditch effort to retain his empire. Once a dream, now a living nightmare, the prophecy had finally been fulfilled. Upon the conclusion of the battle, Harpagus came upon Astyages and began to taunt him, recalling the cannibal feast and relishing that it was he who had planned with Cyrus, that it was he who led the defection. On that fateful day of battle in 550 BC, the empire of the Medes, having existed for 128 years, was no more, the greatest casualty of Astyages' cruelty. But with the death of one empire came the birth of another. Seizing the entirety of Media and its many vassals, lands stretched from central Anatolia all the way to Afghanistan, King Cyrus I of Anshan was no more. He was now Cyrus the Great, founder of the Persian Empire. King of Kings. With the conclusion of the prophecy, the Achaemenid Persian Empire now established, and with Cyrus on the throne, we can now transition into Part 2 The Lost Army of Cambyses. At the beginning of the episode, we mentioned how the Achaemenid Persian Empire, who I will for the rest of the episode refer to only as the Persian Empire, grew to be the largest empire that the world had yet seen. Thus, it shouldn't take anyone by surprise that after the fall of the Medes, Cyrus was far from satiated. The borders of his burgeoning empire were now pressed against both the Lydians and the Neo-Babylonians, introducing the Persians to the greater world of Mesopotamian power politics. As Cyrus spent the first few years of his reign securing his rule over the newly conquered Medes and suppressing the occasional rebellion, the Lydian king, Croesus, wanted to strike while the iron was hot. Seeing the instability on his eastern border, marked by the Halys River in central Anatolia, and knowing that the Persians were preoccupied with internal affairs, Croesus prepared for war. He was, however, a bit nervous in regard to the Persian strength. They had, after all, just toppled one of his traditional rivals in only a few years. Thus, it was decided that before any campaign would be undertaken, Croesus would consult the famed Oracle of Delphi as to whether or not launching an offensive was such a wise idea. 
Oracles were, according to the legends of the day, allegedly capable of foreseeing the future and were often consulted before important decisions were made, though they had a nasty tendency to answer in vague statements that had to be interpreted by the listener. When Croesus asked the oracle if it was wise for the Lydians to take on the Persians, the oracle replied, quote, If he should send an army against the Persians, he would destroy a great empire. Unquote. A bit cryptic, sure, but it was exactly what he wanted to hear. Since the extent of the Persian lands was far larger than that of Lydia, it was assumed that Persia was the greater empire. And with his ambitions now buoyed from what seemed to be the oracle's approval, Croesus mustered together his mighty army, crossed the Halys River, and marched east against the Persians. The exact dates of the Persian-Lydian War are relatively unknown, though it certainly occurred between the foundation of the Persian Empire in 550 BC and their conquering of the Babylonians a little over a decade later. Spoiler alert, the Babylonians don't last long. It may not be the cleanest timeline of a major historical event, but with ancient records, you just have to make do with what you have. That's going to be kind of the theme of this episode. One Neo-Babylonian source writing about the time period places the war at or around 547 to 546 BC, and though it's debated, it's good enough to orient ourselves on the historical timeline. But regardless of the date, Lydia had invaded, and Cyrus was now at war. The high watermark for Croesus' offensive came in 547 BC with the capture of the Cappadocian city of Teria, just east of the Halys River. Facing only a token defense, the Lydians quickly besieged the city before storming it and subsequently enslaving the entirety of the local population. But such an affront to Persian rule would not, by any means, go unanswered. Following a rapid westward advance, in the autumn of 547, Cyrus and his army met the Lydians in the vicinity of Teria, now in ruins. The battle was fierce, but inconclusive. The outnumbered Persians suffered heavy casualties in the engagement, but for each Persian who fell, scores of Lydians perished before him. Yet, as we've seen many times before on this show, as the Persian dead began to mount, the tide of battle swung in favor of the Lydians, forcing Cyrus to disengage and withdraw with his bloodied army. The Lydians, though they held the field, were too battered to pursue, and so couldn't capitalize on the victory by pursuing and destroying the Persian survivors. But it was no matter as the approaching winter signaled the end of the campaign season. Confident that the Persians were too weak to act, especially in such poor environmental conditions, Croesus returned home and disbanded most of his army for the season, allowing the men to rest before resuming the offensive in spring. Unfortunately for the Lydians, however, Croesus had horribly misjudged the situation, and in the month of December found himself once again face to face against Cyrus, except this time the Persian king stood before a larger, reinforced army. Taking place outside of Sardis, the Lydian capital, the battle was hotly contested. The Lydians swarming over the Persian positions who, though outnumbered two to one, were formed in a defensive square to grind down the enemy attack, even utilizing walls of camels, using their smell to frighten away the horses of the Lydian cavalry. Shattering the horsemen, the Persians then advanced against the Lydian infantry, tired from their failed assaults on the square, and slew them with ease. His army in shambles, Croesus took what men he could and retreated behind the walls of Sardis, resisting capture for only an additional 14 days. Harpagus himself, now Cyrus's finest general, led the final attack upon the walls, scaled the sheer heights, overcame the local defenders, entered the city, and threw open the gates from within. And so, the Lydian Empire fell, one more jewel in the crown of Cyrus the Great, King of the Persians, King of the Medes, and newly minted, King of the Lydians. 
now in control of western Anatolia, Cyrus was free to turn his attention south. The Median and Lydian empires were a thing of the past, and he was on a roll. Next on the chopping block were the Neo-Babylonians. Launching his invasion in late 540 BC, Cyrus quickly defeated the Babylonian king, Nabonidus, and captured the strategic cities of Opus and Sippar along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, close to modern-day Baghdad and Iraq. With King Nabonidus and his army now forced back into the capital of Babylon itself, the Persians put the city under siege. Its strong walls, however, would prove a tough nut to crack, and Cyrus, ever so cunning, knew just what to do. Utilizing a small cabal of capable engineers and the massive labor pool of his army, he had his men dig a canal to divert the entire Euphrates River, lowering the river's water level just enough so that his men could now wade into a basin beneath the fortifications and emerge on the other side, well within the city's walls. Pressing his soldiers to the breach, Cyrus's men flooded into the exposed city and put the defending Babylonians to flight. As the city burned, the Neo-Babylonian Empire ceased to exist. Cyrus was now master of all the lands from Anatolia in the west to the Indus River in the east, from the Red Sea in the south to the Caucasus Mountains in the north. Cyrus the Great, the Great King, ruling over the birthplace of civilization, was now the King of the Four Corners of the World, the most prestigious title of all, a traditional title for only the strongest Mesopotamian monarchs dating all the way back to the 220s BC. Yet despite his success, Cyrus had only conquered three of the four great empires in the area. Egypt, still independent of Persian rule, had yet to fall. But Cyrus would never step foot in Egypt. Having expanded his empire so rapidly in such a small amount of time, it was now time to turn inwards and focus on domestic affairs. Passing popular reforms and running a fair administration, ugh, boring, I know, Cyrus the Great was beloved by the people he had only just recently conquered. Tending to his empire at home, Cyrus was too distracted to invade Egypt, and though plans for the invasion were forged, upon the great king's death in 530 BC, the pharaoh's dynasty remained unmolested. But this by no means meant that the Egyptians were off the hook, because Cyrus had children. Five children to be exact, three daughters and two sons. Cyrus, ever so brilliant, before his passing, wanted to ensure that the passage of power upon his eventual death would go off without a hitch. Taking his sons, he reclaimed the eldest, Cambyses II, as the crown prince, the inheritor of the throne upon his father's death. The younger brother, Bardia, and that's a name that you'll want to remember, Bardia, fitting his status as the secondborn, was given the second best position Cyrus could offer. He would be the satrap of Bactria, essentially the governor of the largest and richest province in the empire. This is where Cyrus's brilliance shines. Cambyses was given the trophy, and Bardia was given the best consolation prize he could ask for. But there's more to it. Because Bactria, for those of you with scant knowledge of ancient geography, is more or less where modern Afghanistan is today, as far removed from the Persian political scene as one can get without leaving the empire. This was to reduce the risk of a secession crisis as much as possible, isolating Bardia from the royal court in order to reduce the amount of political scheming. The empire, though mighty, was still young, and the last thing Cyrus wanted was for his squabbling brothers to throw the empire into a civil war and risk destroying the entire project. But Cyrus had confidence in his sons. Upon the death of their father, the two brothers took up their assigned roles. Cambyses II inherited the throne, and Bardia traveled east to Bactria. With the secession having occurred without any real difficulties, all was well in the Persian Empire. For now. In the shadows of his father, Cambyses had enormous shoes to fill. 
The man had squashed three great empires in no time flat, not to mention a billion of a robust and efficient bureaucratic administration to make sure everything ran as smooth as could be. How could Cambyses possibly top that? Why, by mirroring his father, of course. As I had mentioned in passing a few minutes ago, Cyrus's generals and advisors had already drawn up the necessary plans to invade Egypt before the great king's passing. Potential axes of advance, logistics, strategic objectives, that kind of stuff. With the plans in hand and the boring work now out of the way, the task now fell on Cambyses to actually conduct the invasion. And as luck would have it, he would soon be given the golden opportunity to do so. Following a series of exchanges between historical personalities whose names are irrelevant in the lens of this podcast, Cambyses thought it was wise to reach out to Pharaoh Amasis II, ruler of Egypt, and request his daughter's hand in marriage. The Pharaoh, not wishing to deny Cambyses on account of his powerful army, agreed, but furious at the idea of sending his own noble Egyptian daughter to be married to some Persian, sent an imposter. The ruse, however, was quickly found out, and Cambyses, embarrassed and understandably furious, vowed his revenge. As he readied his army for the invasion, the Persian king would soon find himself in an even stronger position to attack. Following another series of exchanges in personalities, a prominent Egyptian general by the name of Phanes defected to the court of Cambyses, offering to aid him in the upcoming conquest. Seeing the loss of their best general, Amasis II desperately reached out to the Greeks on the island of Cyprus, expert sailors who possessed one of the best fleets in the region. Receiving the Egyptian call for help, the Cypriots agreed to join the fight and promptly sided with the Persians. Now left to its own devices, the fate of Amasis's realm now lay in the hands of his son and heir, the inexperienced Samtik III, who was stationed with an army near the town of Pelusium along the eastern extreme of the Nile River. With the cards now stacked so high in favor of the Persians, Cambyses began the attack. The Persian invasion was quick and decisive. In 525 BC, they met the Egyptian army at Pelusium, the Persians began the battle by rapidly closing the distance between the two forces, thus nullifying the strength of the Egyptian archers. Now engaged in pitched hand-to-hand -hand combat, the two sides became locked in a fierce engagement. Pressed shield to shield, spear to spear, the ground quickly began to run red with blood. The Egyptian defenders did all they could, but the veteran Persian army carved their way through the ranks, hacking down those who dared to put up a fight. Forced to flee the carnage, Samtik and his shattered survivors fled west to Memphis, leaving behind some 50,000 of their own lying slain on the battlefield. The decisive action of the war, Samtik's defeat at Pelusium meant that, outside of a few armed holdouts, all of Egypt now fell under Persian rule. The last of the great four empires had fallen. With his invasion of Egypt now complete, Cambyses was now two great campaigns short of his father. Luckily for him, the seizure of Egypt now gave him easy access to vast lands and peoples still ripe for conquest. Lying immediately west of Egypt were the Libyans, located today in what, well, is Libya. Funny how some things never really change. Noticing the massive Persian behemoth to their east, and knowing that they were essentially powerless to stop the onslaught, the Libyans, including the Greek cities along the Mediterranean coast, were quick to submit to Cambyses without a fight. Pleased with such an easy expansion, Cambyses then began to look further west, and began planning for the conquest of Carthage. Yes, for those of you familiar with the history of the Roman Empire, that Carthage. The three Punic Wars, Hannibal crossing the Alps, Carthago de Lenda Est, salt their fields so the survivors can't grow crops for hundreds of years, Carthage. If any of that rings a bell, good. If not, and all that was entirely foreign to you, here's the rundown. Carthage was located on the northeastern coast of modern Tunisia, just north of the modern-day city of Tunis. 
Carthage, in the ancient world, was a city with a deep maritime tradition and an even deeper treasury, rich on account of their easy access to the most lucrative trade routes in the Mediterranean. As such, they had a devastatingly strong naval presence, boasting numerous experienced war fleets all crewed by veteran sailors. Their dominance in the western Mediterranean would eventually put them on a collision course with the rising Roman Republic, and blah blah blah, that's the centuries outside the lens of this episode, time to come back to Earth. Cambyses, planning for the conquest of Carthage, took one look at the massive Carthaginian navy, looked at his own paltry Persian navy, and decided that he was going to need some help. As fate would have it, Cambyses already had his own miniature Carthaginians within his empire. Along the Mediterranean coast in what is today Lebanon and Syria, existed a series of small city-states collectively known as the Phoenicians, each possessing their own lucrative overseas trade routes and their own expert navies to boot. Cambyses approached the Phoenicians with his plans to attack Carthage, and though the Phoenicians were subservient to him, they flat out denied involving themselves in the conquest. They explained to the king that it was Phoenician colonists who had founded Carthage, and as a result they had no desire to commit their navies to wage war on their own kind. Without the support of the Phoenicians, Cambyses' machinations against Carthage now lay dead in the water. Thus, he began to look south, to the lands of Ethiopia. Sending spies to survey the land and deem whether or not it was even worth the effort to invade, the spies evidently came face to face with the Ethiopian king. Perhaps trying to entice the king to submit without a fight, the spies presented the Ethiopian king with luxury Persian goods, fine robes, and beautiful jewelry. But the king continually blew them off, stating how richer his Ethiopians were and how poorly built the Persian goods were. When word reached Cambyses, he flew into a rage. No one was anywhere near as rich and prosperous as his Persian empire. Such insult to his realm would not go unpunished. The invasion of Ethiopia will begin at once. And that's no figure of speech. Cambyses spurred his army and began to march south from Egypt as soon as he possibly could, leading an invasion force to the end of the known world without even the slightest degree of consideration regarding logistics. With Cambyses at its head, the march was going to be conducted purely on foot, with no more supplies than the soldiers could carry on their own person. Yes, it was that poorly planned. To survive, the men would have to rely solely on the land, foraging what they could from the surrounding countryside. Such a poorly provisioned campaign was liable to face tremendous difficulties, especially in the rugged highlands ahead. As the army moved south, one of the few actual preparations Cambyses undertook, if you could call it that, was to consult the Oracle of Ammon as to whether or not his invasion would be successful. Similar to the Oracle of Delphi that Croesus turned to before attacking the Persians, the Oracle of Ammon was said to predict the future, and upon receiving the question from Cambyses' envoys, answered with a hearty, No. That answer really didn't leave much room for debate. Cambyses, to no one's surprise, again threw himself into a fit of rage, and promptly peeled off an army of 50,000 men from his larger invasion force. Their objective? To punish the Oracle, destroy the site, and kill or enslave any fool who dare stand in their way. The Oracle of Ammon, however, would not be destroyed so easily. In fact, the task of even getting there in one piece would be a tremendous undertaking in its own right. Located at the oasis of Siwa, the oracle was securely positioned along the Egyptian-Libyan border, in the heart of Egypt's western desert, one of the most unforgiving and desolate lands on earth, a desert so vast and ever-changing that it is often referred to as the Great Sand Sea. Dispatching his army from the power base of Thebes, or is today the city of Luxor, Cambyses bid his men adieu. It was the last time he would ever see them again. With the departure of the army bound for Siwa, Cambyses and the main force resumed their march onwards towards Ethiopia. Hamstrung by the complete lack of logistics, 
the invasion quickly devolved into an unmitigated disaster. The following excerpt is taken from The Histories by Herodotus, Book 3, Thalia, Paragraph 25. Quote, Before, however, he, Cambyses, had accomplished one-fifth part of the distance, all that the army had in the way of provisions failed, whereupon the men began to eat the sumpter beasts, their pack animals, which shortly failed also. If then, at this time, Cambyses, seeing what was happening, had confessed himself in the wrong and led his army back, he would have done the wisest thing that he could after the mistake made at the outset. But as it was, he took no manner of heed, but continued to march forwards. So long as the earth gave them anything, the soldiers sustained life by eating the grass and herbs. But when they came to the bare sand, a portion of them were guilty of a horrid deed. By tens they cast lots for a man, who was slain to be the food of the others. When Cambyses heard of these doings, alarmed at such cannibalism, he gave up his attack on Ethiopia, and retreated by the way he had come, reaching Thebes, after he had lost vast numbers of his soldiers. Unquote. Though they had suffered terrible hardships and the absolute horrors of cannibalism, at least that army had made a home. The army sent to destroy the oracle at Siwa, on the other hand, was never so fortunate. I know I usually don't include many quotes, but I really love Herodotus and his work. Fascinating stuff. So here's another, speaking of the army bound for Siwa, by Herodotus in his histories, Book 3 Thalia, paragraph 26. Quote, the men sent to attack the Ammonians, that is to say, the guardians of the oracle, started from Thebes, having guides with them, and may be clearly traced as far as the city Oasis, which is inhabited by Samians, said to be of the tribe Asheronia. The place is distant from Thebes seven days' journey across the sand, and is called in our tongue the Island of the Blessed. Thus far the army is known to have made its way, but thenceforth nothing is to be heard of them, except for what the Ammonians, and those who get their knowledge from them, report. It is certain they neither reached the Ammonians, nor even came back to Egypt. Further than this, the Ammonians relate as follows, that the Persians set forth from oasis across the sand had reached about halfway between that place and themselves, when, as they were at their midday meal, a wind arose from the south, strong and deadly, bringing with it vast columns of whirling sand, which entirely covered up the troops and caused them wholly to disappear. Thus, according to the Ammonians, did it fare with this army. Unquote. Isolated from the world, 50,000 men enter the Great Sand Sea. Caught in a violent and unrelenting sandstorm, they vanish without a trace, buried alive and forever entombed in the sand. Despite countless efforts to locate the army, no verifiable remains have ever been found. In fact, many Egyptologists dismiss the entire event as a myth, saying it's futile to even attempt to try and find the lost army. But that's done little to deter people from trying. One notable attempt involves the legendary British officer Ord Wingate, who himself will certainly be the focus of an expedition history episode at some point. Scouring the desert in 1933, he was unable to locate any sort of artifacts or remains. Despite this failing, he did take the opportunity to practice his leadership capabilities in such a hostile environment, experience that would serve him well less than a decade later, in the Second World War. A second notable expedition occurred in the early 1980s, and though they found small, seemingly Persian trinkets, their more significant findings were that of bone fragments that were dated to about 1500 BC, well before the time of Cambyses. Though that's not to say that there haven't been any major findings. You can't see it, but on the script, uh, findings is written with heavily emphasized air quotes, because these findings are in fact elaborate hoaxes. The first hoax occurred in 1977, but was quickly exposed as such. 
A second, more intensive hoax occurred as recently as 2009, when two Italian archaeologists declared they had uncovered large quantities of human skeletal remains in the vicinity of the Siwa Oasis. Accompanied by the remains of weapons and equipment as well, all were said to be dated back to the Persian invasion. The findings were dismissed, however, on account of the team's releasing of the findings via film documentary rather than scientific paper. Making matters worse, both the archaeologists had a history of filming shockumentaries, a term describing sensationalist pseudo-documentaries with a heavy focus on taboo subjects such as death. Most damningly of all, the Egyptian authorities never even granted them permission to conduct their digs in the first place, and have still yet to verify any of their findings as authentic. But perhaps most interestingly of all, as of 2014, a new theory on the army's disappearance has come to light. Professor Olaf Kaper, an archaeologist with Leiden University in the Netherlands, argues that the story of the sandstorm in the Oracle was itself pure fabrication. He argues that an Egyptian rebellion led by Pedubasis III and operating out of the Dakla Oasis, itself located in Egypt's western desert, was the true reason for the Persian army's invasion of the desert, not the destruction of the Oracle. Professor Kaper believes that it wasn't a great sandstorm that buried the army, but a hostile ambush that defeated them instead. His theory states that Pedubasis, aware of the approaching Persian threat, positioned his own army to ambush the Persians, silently defeating them and forcing them from his rebellious holdings in western Egypt. Kaper reasons that King Darius I, Cambyses' successor, invented the tale of the sandstorm to cover up a humiliating battlefield defeat in order to save Cambyses' reputation before later crushing the rebellion altogether. According to this theory, Darius I was so effective in rewriting the entire event that generations later, in the time of Herodotus, the only story that remained was that of the sandstorm. Though the theory has its merits, it is still largely speculation and has yet to be conclusively proven. Until then, the lost army of Cambyses will retain its spot as perhaps one of history's greatest mysteries. But that doesn't mean that you should forget what was mentioned about King Darius I and his fabricated stories, because now we find ourselves at Part 3, The Conspiracy of the Seven. Cambyses returned to Egypt in failure. His dual campaigns had been disasters, with one army swallowed by the desert and his own having literally consumed themselves, the king's mental state rapidly deteriorated. Already prone to fits of rage, his collapsing psyche now turned to madness, losing all sense of logic and reason. Returning to the city of Memphis, Cambyses arrived just as the recently conquered Egyptian cities were partaking in an important religious ceremony featuring the sacred Apis Bull, a celebrated physical manifestation of one of the Egyptian gods. Entering the city to parades and feasts, Cambyses believed that the ceremony was held in mockery of him and his defeats. In response, he approached the sacred animal, and in the midst of festivities, drove his dagger into its thigh, proclaiming, O oh fools, and think ye that gods become like this, of flesh and blood, and sensible to steal? A fit god indeed for Egyptians, such a one. But it shall cost you dear that you have made me your laughingstock. Unquote. As you can imagine, such an act did little to endear him to the Egyptian population. As his mind decayed even further after the incident, his madness only continued to grow. While asleep, Cambyses had a dream in which his brother, Bardia, sat on the throne. Interpreting the dream as a sign that his brother was planning to kill him and take the crown for himself, Cambyses knew that he had to beat him at his own game. He immediately ordered his brother's assassination and sent forth a loyal companion, Prasaspes, to do the deed. Herodotus, in his histories, states that Bardia was slain either while on a hunting trip with Prasaspes or was drowned at sea. 
Whatever the cause of his death, the king had effectively murdered his own brother, though only a few in the king's court were aware of the deed. Despite committing such a drastic act, Cambyses' madness was not yet satiated. Seeing his sister weep for the deceased Bardia, Cambyses killed her as well, before then going on to order the execution of numerous high-ranking Persian officials, burying them alive without cause. With the king still in Egypt and a bureaucracy in chaos, two Magi brothers decided to seize the opportunity. Herodotus, in the history's Book 3 Thalia, paragraph 61, writes, quote, One of them had been left in Persia by Cambyses as comptroller of his household, and it was he who began the revolt. Aware that Bardia was dead, and that his death was hid and known to few of the Persians, while most believed that he was still alive, he laid his plan, and made a bold stroke for the crown. He had a brother, the same of whom I spoke before as his partner in the revolt, who happened to greatly resemble Bardia, the son of Cyrus, who Cambyses, his brother, had put to death. And not only was this brother of his like Bardia in person, but he also bore the selfsame name, to wit, Bardia. Patizithes, the other magus, having persuaded him that he would carry the whole business through, took him and made him sit upon the royal throne. Having so done, he sent heralds through all the land, to Egypt and elsewhere, to make proclamation to the troops that henceforth they were to obey Bardia, the son of Cyrus, and not Cambyses. Two Magi brothers, the term Magi, singular Magus, referring to priests of the Zoroastrian religion, seized the Persian throne. One brother, by the name of Bardia, who also resembled the recently assassinated Bardia, stood in place of the king's dead brother, claiming himself to be the real, royal Bardia. The other brother, Patizithes, used his brother as the face of the operation, ruling through the false Bardia to ensure his power appeared legitimate. Now in control, the two brothers sent forth officials throughout the empire to spread the word of the rise of Bardia, which eventually reached Cambyses in Egypt. The herald's news confused Cambyses and his advisors. Bardia had been slain. Who was this imposter? Was it an imposter? Upon questioning, the official stated that he had not seen Bardia, but rather it was the magus Patizithes who gave him the order. Assessing the situation, the truth became clear to Cambyses. Patizithes and his brother Bardia had stolen the throne. Hearing of the magus Bardia, Cambyses was shocked. His dream of Bardia on the throne had come true, but it was not his brother, not his Bardia. It was now clear he had ordered the assassination of his brother for no reason at all, and the mad king became overcome with grief. After a brief moment of reflection, Cambyses knew what had to be done. He must avenge his brother, slay the imposter, and take back the empire. The king sprang forth and mounted his horse, ready to go on campaign. But just as he did so, his sword slipped from the scabbard that held it. The razor-sharp blade cut deep into his thigh, the same spot where he had stabbed the apis bull, and looking down... Cambyses knew he had suffered a mortal wound. It was clear to all around him that nothing could be done. Regardless, the king spent the next twenty days trying to recover from the wound, but his time was up. The gash had become infected, and he was now fighting to survive. Unfortunately, it was a losing battle. Summoning his closest staff and advisors, he told them the story of the prophecy, the death of his brother Bardia, and of the two magi now on the throne. In an impassioned speech, he bewailed his own misfortune, desperately begging for his companions to reclaim the empire, his dying wish. As the crowd of Persians around him wept, King Cambyses II, eldest son of Cyrus the Great, took his final breath. The Magi rule of the empire was now secure. Despite Cambyses' last wish, 
His advisors and companions were not entirely convinced that the Bardi on the throne was in fact an imposter, and so no action was undertaken for the next seven months. But on the eighth month of the Magi rule, a high-born Persian nobleman by the name of Otanes grew suspicious of the Bardia who sat upon the throne. Otanes had previously married off his daughter, Phaedima, to Cambyses, who upon his death was then remarried to the ruling Bardia. A member of the ruling class, Otanes was one of the few men aware that the magus Bardia had had his ears removed under the reign of Cambyses, the punishment for an unknown but heinous crime. Sending a message to his daughter, he informed her of his suspicions and ordered her to search for his ears. As the false Bardia slept, Phaedima gently ran her hands up and down the side of his head and found nothing. It was now confirmed without a doubt that a false Bardia, Bardia the Magus, sat upon the throne of the Empire. With this information, Otanes approached two close friends, fellow aristocrats as Pathanes and Gobrius, who themselves expressed that they too had doubted the legitimacy of the ruling Bardia. Endeavoring to reclaim the throne for the Magi, it quickly became clear to the three conspirators that additional men would be required, and so three more trusted Persian nobles, Hydenes, Interferenes, and Megabesis, were brought in on the plan. As the nobles were gathering, a seventh man, Darius, joined them, brought into the fold on account of having been Cambyses' lance-bearer, a prestigious position within Cambyses' court, and who had been alongside the king at the time of his death. If you recognize the name Darius from the end of part two, well, that's called foreshadowing. After swearing oaths of loyalty, the conspirators began to debate as to what the next step would be. Otanes argued that the group should wait to bring more men in on the plot before finding the perfect opportunity to strike. Darius, however, strongly disagreed, stating that it was best to act now while the iron was hot and the Magi rule had not been cemented in time, adding that the longer the plot takes and the more people brought into it, the more likely it is that their conspiracy is discovered. As the debate raged, Gobrius stepped in, speaking of Cambyses' death and of his final words. In honor of Cambyses, he said, quote, Dear friends, when will a fitter occasion offer for us to recover the kingdom, or, if we are not strong enough, at least die in the attempt? Consider that we Persians are governed by a Median magus, and one too, who had his ears cut off. Some of you were present when Cambyses lay upon his deathbed. Such, doubtless, remember what curses he called down upon the Persians if they made no effort to recover the kingdom. Then, indeed, we paid but little heed to what he said, because we thought he spoke out of hatred to set us against his brother. Now, however, my vote is that we do as Darius has counseled, march straight in a body to the palace from the place where we are now, and forthwith set upon the Magian." Unquote. Thus, the conspirators were convinced, and agreeing with Darius, prepared to attack at once. Setting off on foot, the seven men traveled along the Persian roads and into the Zagros Mountains, aiming for the palatial castle from which the Magi ruled. However, halfway into their journey, news reached them of a dangerous development for the Magi Palace. Their power having been secured, the Magi brothers were looking for ways to tie up loose ends, the most dangerous of which was Prasaspes. The real Bardia's assassin, he was perhaps the only man outside the Magi court who knew the entire truth of Bardia's death and imitation, and as such, was given large amounts of lavish gifts to buy his silence. Seeing their success thus far, the Magi pressed further, arranging for Zaspis to speak in front of an audience of Persians so that he may reassure everyone that the Magus Bardia was in fact the real son of Cyrus, and that it was he who should rule. Herodotus in his Histories, Book 3 Thalia, Paragraph 75, writes, Brazaspes said he was quite ready to do their will in the matter, 
So the Magi assembled the people and placed Rezaspes upon the top of the tower and told him to make a speech. Then this man, forgetting of set purpose of all that the Magi had entreated him to say, began with Achaemenes and traced down the descent of Cyrus, after which, when he came to that king, he recounted all the services that had been rendered by him to the Persians, from whence he went on to declare the truth, which Hidardo had been concealed. He said, because it would not have been safe for him to make it known, but now necessity was laid on him to disclose the whole. Then he told how, forced to it by Cambyses, he had himself taken the life of Bardia, son of Cyrus, and how the Persia was now ruled by the Magi. Last of all, with many curses upon the Persians, if they did not recover the kingdom and wreak vengeance on the Magi, he threw himself headlong from the tower and into the abyss below. Such was the end of Prezaspes, a man all his life of high repute among the Persians. Unquote. The truth now lay bare. The audience was whipped into a frenzy, with word of the ruse spreading rapidly throughout the empire. The news of Prezaspes' speech and dramatic self-sacrifice reached the conspirators when they were halfway to the palace, and the group halted to consider going forward. Otanes, ever so cautious, argued that they should wait for the pandemonium to die down. Darius, ever Otanes' opposite, argued that they should instead press on, refusing to lose the moment. Just then, the conspirators looked into the sky, as before them were a pair of vultures being pursued by seven hawks. Before their eyes, the hawks caught the vultures and tore them asunder with their claws and beaks. A favorable omen. Without any additional hesitation, the group carried on. Reaching the palace gate, the seven conspirators bluffed their way in. Too afraid to stop such men of high Persian aristocracy, the guards did nothing to halt the men from entering. Once inside, the conspirators immediately ran into a group of eunuchs, trusted imperial servants, who aggressively inquired into the men's presence while threatening the guards for letting them in. But the conspirators were not in the mood for idle chit-chat. Breaking into cheers, each encouraging the others, the nobles drew their daggers and attacked the eunuchs, slaying them all before they could intervene in the conspirators' plan. Their avenue of approach now clear, the men ran for the palace's apartments, intent on hunting down their quarry. The Magi brothers, deliberating over the Prezaspes incident, heard the commotion outside and hurriedly armed themselves, Patizithes with a spear and the false Bardia with a bow. Rushing outside to investigate, the Magi came face to face with the charging conspirators and a melee ensued. No stranger to combat, Patizithes refused to go out without a fight. Thrusting his spear at the aggressors, he wounded Aspithenes in the leg before then catching Istaphernes in the face, gouging out his eye, before finally being overcome and killed, the assailant's dagger striking true. The false Bardia's bow, however, was near useless in such a close quarters fight, and so he fled back into the dark chambers of the palace apartments. Pursued hotly by Gobrius and Darius, he desperately tried to close the door behind him, but to no avail. The two conspirators plowed their way in, with Gabrius tackling the false Bardia to the ground. As the two grappled in the dark, Darius stood watching the silhouettes with his dagger, fearing any strike he made would miss and hit Gobrius. But Gobrius would have none of it, bravely shouting, Fear not! Strike though it may hit us both! And thus, Darius plunged his dagger home, and killed the false Bardia. Herodotus writes in his Histories, Book 3 Thalia, Paragraph 79, quote, Thus were the Magi slain, and the seven cutting off both the heads and leaving their own wounded in the palace, partly because they were disabled and partly to guard the citadel, went forth from the gates with the heads in their hands, shouting and making an uproar. They called out to all the Persians whom they met and told them what had happened, showing them the heads of the Magi, while at the same time they slew every magus who fell in their way. 
Then the Persians, when they knew what the seven had done, and understood the fraud of the Magi, thought it but just to follow the example set them, and, drawing their daggers, they killed the Magi wherever they could find any. Such was their fury that, unless night had closed in, not a single magus would have been left alive. The Persians observe this day with one accord, and keep it more strictly than any other in the whole year. It is then that they hold a great festival, which they call the Magophonia. No magus may show himself abroad during the whole time that the feast lasts, but all must remain home the entire day. Unquote. Thus, the rule of the Magi had come to an end. Five days after the slain of the Magi, Darius and the rest of the conspirators gathered together to plan the future of their reclaimed empire. Some argue that they should install a monarchy, others an oligarchy, but Darius was adamant that they return to monarchy. By proclaiming that only one of them shall be the king, he won over most of the conspirators. But then the obvious question arose, who among the seven conspirators was most fit to be king? To settle this, six of the men arranged a gentleman's competition. Altenes, who had argued for democracy and who had started the conspiracy in the first place, withdrew himself from the running. The six applicants to the throne would all ride their horses into what were effectively the suburbs of the city surrounding the mountain fortress. Beginning their voyage early in the morning while it was still dark, he whose horse neighed first after sunup would reign king. So, yes, the fate of Persian leadership was decided by the chance guttural utterance of a handful of horses. Stranger elections have happened. But Darius, ever so cunning, had a plan. Or at least, he had a man who had a plan. As night fell and the conspirators' meeting concluded, Darius handed over the reins of his horse to his groom, the man who took care of his noble steed, and described the morning's competition. The groom, a clever man himself, tied a mare, or a female horse for those of you unfamiliar with barnyard genders, to a post in the suburbs, and then slowly walked Darius's horse towards it. As the two horses met in the suburbs, the groom stepped back and allowed the two to come together, for lack of a better term. This is supposed to be a family podcast. As the six conspirators mounted their horses in the wee hours of the morning, Darius made sure to let his horse lead the way, and the six men slowly rode into the suburbs. As the sun rose over the horizon, and the warm rays enveloped horse and rider alike, Darius's mount neared the spot where the groom had taken him to meet the mare the night before, and let out a hearty and excited neigh. Just then, though the sun had only just rose, a great clap of thunder shook the sky, broken by a fierce bolt of lightning. Seeing that not only had Darius won their challenge, but so too had seemingly won the favor of the heavens, the other five conspirators immediately dismounted, dropped to their knees, and swore allegiance to their new sovereign. At least, that's what Darius would like you to believe. Because that entire story, from the madness of Cambyses to the crowning of Darius, was the official royal account of King Darius's first rise to the throne. In a world without mass media, without televisions, radios, phones, and the internet, he who controlled the narrative controlled the world. And, well, maybe not much has changed in that regard since the early 500s BC, but consider this. Maybe Cambyses had never actually went mad. Maybe he had never stabbed the apis bull. Maybe he had never been killed by an accidental wound to the same location where he had stabbed the bull. Maybe his death wasn't an accident. Maybe he was murdered. Maybe his brother Bardia was never killed. Maybe the Magi never took power. Maybe there was no false Bardia. Maybe the king in the mountain fortress had been Bardia all along, the real Bardia. And now, maybe, just maybe, the man who killed Cambyses plotted the assassination of his brother, and struck the fateful blow against the true Bardia, the rightful heir to the Persian crown, is now sitting on the throne, 
His co-conspirators are now the patriarchs of the richest families in the empire, second only to the king himself, and each has an honored and esteemed role in the greater story. His narrative becomes the narrative, disseminated throughout the realm with theatrical plays, royal messengers, town criers, and large detailed carvings placed on the major roads and trade routes. Only the king's version of the story exists, and his source? Trust me, bro. As the years go by, modern scholars collect more and more evidence that suggests that the popular story concerning Darius's rise to power, as related to you in this episode, consists of more myth than reality. Fabricated legend to cover up a bloody and illegal royal coup, one that stole the empire straight from the lineage of its founder, Cyrus the Great. Of course, however, this is ancient history. The facts and figures come and go, but the characters and events remain, the human element all wrapped around a nugget of truth. At the end of the day, sure, Darius may be guilty of the largest lie in history, but who can definitively say? Scraps of evidence 2,500 years after the fact do little to replace what limited written records we possess from the time. But that's the kicker. That's what makes the ancient world such an exciting place. Because, to quote French historian Pierre Brian, you must believe in ancient history, even if it is not true. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Expedition History. I apologize for the longer than usual wait before this episode's release. Life gets in the way sometimes, and unfortunately this show is just a hobby, so it often has to take a back seat. Special shout out to the listeners in the states of Minnesota and Illinois. I'm not sure why, but this show has really taken off there, at least relative to other areas. If you guys have been sharing these episodes with your friends, keep it up. And that goes for the rest of you too. Thank you for recommending us to your friends and family, and friendly reminder to do so if you haven't already. If you found what you heard here today to be even moderately entertaining, please feel free to follow this show and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening platform. Tune in next month as we venture away from the mysterious fog of the ancient world and kick off our first multi-episode character piece, England's most adventurous gentleman, Sir Francis Drake. Thanks again for listening to the 80th most popular education podcast in Slovakia, and we'll see you next time on Expedition History.